Welcome to the Dream Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Turn me to Song of Songs. Um, I'm going to be honest with y'all. Uh, we're going to let the Lord just do whatever he wants today. <laughs> um, I've got so much swirling in me, though. And uh, so we'll, we'll, event, we'll end up at Song of Songs 3. Um, and I've got so many Bibles up here, too, so I just got to figure out how to. Um, as soon as the Passion Translation comes out with the whole Bible, it'll be that thick. But uh, at least we'll have just one book, not 40. Um, okay, so l- let me just start with this. I uh, may read this and may not. Um, Friday, I think it was, Friday, um, we were in Myrtle Beach, and Veda was asleep. And, uh, and so I was just having a conversation with the Lord. And he started talking to me about, about floods, okay? In, uh, in Genesis 6, the world has become wicked, okay? So the world has, has gone totally opposite of its design. And so the Lord makes the decision, I'm going to destroy all living things. But then, if you keep reading in Genesis, he finds one righteous man, Noah, and he says, because of one righteous man, instead of destroying everything, I'm actually going to remove unrighteousness from the earth so that righteousness can repopulate it. So, so why, is this, why is this important? Um, because God's intention, and even I, th- I believe, if I remember this right, some Bibles even have in the subtitle before the flood section, the earth destroyed. Um, and let me be clear, the earth was not destroyed. I mean, we're still on the earth, right? The earth was not destroyed. God's intention for the earth was never destruction. His intention was always preservation of his good creation. Okay? All right? So, with this in mind, he finds a righteous man. He puts him in an ark. Even even right now as I'm saying this, the Lord's showing me a ton. But he puts him in an ark. He floods the earth. And as he floods the earth, all unrighteousness is removed. And when the floodwaters recede, there is a righteous man and his family, his seed, that remains to repopulate everything. Okay? And so this is where we get stuff like the saying, uh, would you be willing to build something that only eight people would be interested in being a part of? Talking about the ark. Remember, Noah had ne- there, it had never rained on planet earth, ever. The Bible says that everything was nourished from springs that came up from the ground. It had never rained. So when the Lord comes to Noah and says, I'm going to send rain, so I need you to build a boat. And when you're done building this gigantic boat, I'm going to send rain. It wasn't just Noah hearing, and today's not even about Noah, but I'm getting us in the right place. It wasn't just Noah hearing, oh, it's going to rain. It was Noah hearing, I'm sending something that the earth has never seen before. 
Do you understand this? So the amount of trust that it takes for Noah to build an ark is elevated beyond what any of us have ever thought when we start to understand that he was being told something was coming that you had no idea could ever happen. Rain. Noah's preparing for a flood that's going to come from rain in something that has never happened. So he builds an ark. His family get on the ark. The Lord shuts the door behind them. And once they're there, it initiates the floodgates of heaven being thrown open and rain falling for the first time and destroying what? Unrighteousness. So when the flood recedes, there's righteousness that remains. Now, here's why this is so interesting. Let me go to Habakkuk. Um, don't worry about turning there. It'll probably take you longer to find it than um, me reading it. So it's a tiny, tiny book that's full of power. Habakkuk prophesies, this is the word of the Lord through Habakkuk, says this, uh, 2.14. For as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness, that's a horrible translation, with a knowledge of the glory of the Lord, okay? So as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So that word, the earth will be filled. There's a couple of ways that word could be translated, okay? Filled is one. It could be covered. The earth will be covered with a knowledge. The other word that could be used there is flooded, okay? So Habakkuk prophesies, as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be flooded with an awareness of the glory of the Lord, okay? That word awareness or knowledge, as most of your Bibles say, is not just a, I know about the Lord, okay? So this is written in Hebrew. When it's translated into English, there is no English word that communicates what this word means in Hebrew. Knowledge is the closest, but there's no English word. What that knowledge means is, and this is the only way I know how to describe this. When me and Jordan were dating, I knew of Jordan. But when we got married, I knew Jordan. Y'all feel me? That's what this word means. It's an intimate understanding. And actually, that word is used multiple times when, it talks, when the Bible talks about marriage, consummating a marriage, that he knew her. Okay? So, the, as the waters cover the sea, the earth will be flooded with an intimate knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The word glory could also be translated goodness. Remember, Moses says, Lord, let all of your glory pass me by. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to put you in this cleft and I'm going to let my goodness pass you by. Moses asked for glory. The Lord responds with, I'm going to send you my goodness. Glory and goodness are synonymous with each other, specifically in the Hebrew connotation. So, as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be flooded with an intimate knowledge of the goodness of the Lord. Y'all with me? So, when the flood happens, the Lord goes to Noah he sends a rainbow as a covenant and says, I'll never destroy the earth again with a flood. 
But he is sending a flood again. To be clear, this flood is not from water to destroy unrighteousness. This flood is a flood of goodness to transform unrighteousness into righteousness. This, listen, okay. All right, are y'all with me? This is evangelism. So for, for years, we've made, I gotta have my seat. For years, we've made evangelism people choosing between heaven and hell. And let's be honest, if you're given the choice between heaven and hell, 100% of the time, you're choosing heaven, right? Do you want eternal torment or eternal bliss? Of course, eternal bliss. And so this is what we did to get people saved. If you died in a car accident tomorrow, would you be in heaven or hell? And, and hundreds get saved because hundreds want to be in heaven. I think heaven's great. Here's the thing we never talked about was that what if you wake up tomorrow and don't get hit by a car and you're still on earth? But we, ne we never talked about that. Because evangelism was about people choosing hell or heaven. The problem is, is they made the choice heaven and had no idea how to live until you get to heaven. Which is actually you living in such a way that heaven is drawn into your world and your world here becomes heaven. Do you know what I'm saying? And so we got so many people walking the streets and coming in and out of churches that have chosen heaven. That have made the choice and their lives don't look any different. Why? Because there hasn't been a decision to move from unrighteousness into righteousness. Because in order to move from unrighteousness into righteousness, it's going to require you to subject yourself to the flood of goodness that honestly only comes through the secret place. So he says, I'll never flood the earth again and destroy it. But I will flood it again. This time it's going to be called Jesus Christ coming into the earth, dying on a cross, rising again, and the blood becoming the flood that flows over the unrighteous that transforms them into righteousness. Right? And we, we were, we were talking about this earlier. I don't think we understand this. In, in the American culture, what we encounter on a weekly basis is unique in this room. And, and, and if you're new, maybe you got a little taste of it in worship. There's very, very, very few places that he has unlocked the depth of himself like he has in this room. Very few places. I'm 100% okay saying that. You know why? Because that's all we've gone after. I believe we can change the city. I'm honestly only interested in how much of him I can reach because I believe the crazy thought that if I could reach him enough, all of Columbia would be saved. I don't need to win everybody in Columbia into heaven. All I need to do is host heaven to the point where everybody in Columbia finds themselves in the dimension of heaven. John the Baptist was a voice crying out in the wilderness. He didn't have a billboard. He had a message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Bible says everybody from Israel went into the wilderness to be baptized by John. 
Why? Because they were hearing a frequency coming out of the wilderness that was different than anything they had ever heard, literally because the Lord had not spoken in 400 years. There was a frequency that was different than anything they had ever heard. And when that frequency hit them, they made the response, that's different than anything I know, but something inside of me tells me that's what I'm made for. Right? And so a lot of our stories is we come into the room, and before a message is preached, before a song is sung, you begin to hear a frequency that everything in you says, I don't know what this thing is, but I know it's right. And it's because us as a church, us as a leadership, we have postured ourselves, and I say this a lot, but just so to reiterate, that we're not partnering with God to reach people. We're partnering with people to reach God. That's what people all the time, what's, you know, what's your church, what makes you different? Nothing. Except we're not going after people. We're going after him. And you just to watch people just be, how in the world are you doing church like that? Right? Until we get in the room and we start having stories pop up like, hey, I know y'all didn't know I was sick or I, I know y'all didn't know I had this injury, but the Lord just healed me. Because where he is, there is freedom. Y'all with me? All right. So how are we going to tie this together? I'm just kidding. I know exactly how we're going to tie this together. So Song of Songs 3. Hey, Ellington, you're back there. Could you give me a little more treble on this? Sounds like I'm underwater, ironically, talking about a flood. Um, thank you in advance. So, Song of Songs 3, let me just give you a quick recap, and this is why all of everything I just said matters, um, is what we're about to read. This is maybe my favorite portion of Song of Songs, and it's where the king, Yahweh, the father, begins to speak over the bride and the groom, us and Jesus, okay? So, here's where we are, just to give you a quick, like, backstory. Uh, in chapter 1, we let him kiss us with the kiss of new life. Okay, this is all review. We invited, we are invited into a relationship, <coughs> excuse me, with Jesus with no veil between us. So he begins fixing how we see ourselves, giving us identity, and calling us into the inner vineyard which is working from the inside out, okay? Chapter 2, he asked, we ask for more revival. The Shulamite asked for revival, and he responds with an invitation to climb his mountain or to arise. Because of the unknown and the step of trust it would require, the Shulamite, representing us, says no. Chapter 3 starts out, where we face the fact that because we said no in chapter 2, our lover has retreated to the secret place where he awaits our change of thinking, repenting. We go out in search of the one our soul longs for, and once we move beyond what others can give us that supplement our intimacy with him, we actually begin to encounter him in secret. Okay? This is where we are. Y'all with me? Okay. So, now that we have fastened ourselves to our lover, today is the climactic scene of us arising to the place where we, were co where we will co-sit with Jesus, okay? So, 
Remember, in Proverbs 25.2, let me just read this real quick. Proverbs 25.2, I read this last week. Um, I need to do better about marking my place, but I just get rolling. Uh, Proverbs 25.2 says this, God conceals the revelation of his word in the hiding place of his glory. You remember this from last week? But the honor of kings is revealed by how thoroughly they search out the deeper meaning of all that God says. It's God's privilege to conceal something, a revelation, a word. And it's the king and queen's privilege to search it out. So he's hiding things in the secret place just to draw us into the lifestyle of searching things out. Because in the process of searching things out, we actually discover he who has hidden the things for us. Okay? So Proverbs 25, 2 is where that was. Now in James 1, it says this. Now remember that. It's God's privilege to conceal something and our privilege to find it. Okay? James 1 says this. Verse 2, my fellow believers, when it seems as though you're facing nothing but difficulties, see, as in a, see it as an invaluable opportunity to experience the greatest joy that you can. For you know that when your faith is tested, it stirs up power within you to endure all things. And then as your endurance grows even stronger, it will release perfection into every part of your being until there's nothing missing and nothing lacking. Verse 12, if your faith remains strong... Even while surrounded by life's difficulties, you will continue to experience the untold blessings of God. True happiness comes as you pass the test with faith, receiving the victorious crown of life promised to every lover of God. When you're tempted, don't ever let, excuse me, don't ever say God is tempting me. For God is incapable of. Of, te- of being tempted by evil, and he is never the source of temptation. Hear that. Okay? God's incapable of tempting you with evil. Instead, it is each person's own desires and thoughts that drag them into evil and lure them away into darkness. Evil desires give birth to evil actions, and when sin is fully mature, it can murder you. So, my friends, don't be fooled by your own desires. Every gift God freely gives us is good and perfect. Streaming down from the Father of lights, who shines from heaven with no hidden shadow or darkness, and is never subject to change. God was delighted to give us birth by the truth of his infallible word. Man, I'm seeing a lot of stuff right here. God was delighted to give us birth by the truth of his infallible word, which includes scripture, but is primarily Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, so that we would fulfill his chosen destiny for us and become the favorite ones out of all his creation. So that we would fulfill his chosen destiny for us and become his favorite ones out of all his creation. Do you, do you see yourself, just a little side, do you see yourself as his favorite one? You know what I'm saying? 
Like, do you, do, you, do you hear things in the secret place that causes you to say, and I think I said this last week, that causes you to say, if anybody ever heard what he just spoke to me, they would think I was the most stuck-up person on planet Earth. Do, but do you hear that stuff? Do you allow him to speak things? Hey, do you allow him to speak things over you that causes you to be very uncomfortable because of how good it is? You know what I mean? It's one thing for him to be able to say, man, you're good. I didn't take that because everybody else is good too. But when he starts to whisper, hey, just so you know, you're my favorite one. Do you see how weird that feels? Right? It does. It, it hits us in a weird way because in order, do I chase this rabbit, Lord? Yes, okay. In order, we'll get to Song of Songs 3. In order to get, there's two natures present. I'm always having this conversation, just so y'all know. When I'm preaching and I'm looking, I'll always look right there at that wall. I'm looking at that wall because in my head I'm having the conversation, Lord, do I chase this or do I not? Do I chase it or do I not? And most of the time he says, go for it. So there are two realities present. Are y'all wait? Are y'all good? Okay. There are two realities present within us 100% of the time. There is the Adam nature and then there is the God nature in us, okay? Or let's say like, there's the first Adam nature and the last Adam, Jesus, nature, in all of us, okay? When we're born and we're entered into the reality of sin that is in the world, when we're entered into that reality, the Adam nature within us becomes the prominent nature that we live by, okay? So, you have your Adam nature that you're living everything by. However, the Bible says that God put eternity in the heart of every man. Okay? So while you live by your Adam nature, there is an eternal nature that is longing to be unveiled within you. So when you get saved, what it is is somebody through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're in a service, or maybe you're just yourself, maybe it's you, but there's somebody that is reaching past the Adam nature, taking hold of the Jesus nature within you and pulling him to be the prominent nature you live by. That's salvation. And when that happens, it results in a death to the Adam nature so that you never live by it again. Okay? So, two points here. Number one, church people are the most offended people on planet Earth. And it makes sense. The Jesus nature will 100% of the time offend the Adam nature. What does offense mean? What does it mean to be offended? The word, if you just Google it, here's what offended means. It means um, actually, let me, I don't want to lie to y'all. Let me just do this real quick. Um, I think I have this somewhere in my notes, but that's okay. Um, okay. Resentful, to be resentful or annoyed, typically as a result of a perceived insult. Okay? So, Adam is always insulted by Jesus. How do I know this? Because Jesus Christ comes onto the scene. He's a carpenter. In their eyes, he's a nobody. I mean, literally. In the eyes of the Pharisees, they didn't believe in him partially because he was a nobody. 
It was Jesus, the carpenter. He comes up, and all of a sudden, he starts going to weddings and making water into wine and starts healing people and starts, starts calling Lazarus out of the grave and starts doing these insane miracles. And all the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, are looking at him saying, he's a nobody, but he's doing all the stuff that we can't do. You know what I mean? How many times in Scripture do you see Pharisees glowing in the dark on a mount of transfiguration? Never. Right? So when they see Jesus doing that, the carpenter, they immediately are offended. Why? Because they're annoyed as a result of a perceived insult. What were they insulted by? The fact that they had spent their entire lives in a religious system, and here comes a carpenter that is just simply filled with the Spirit of God that's doing all the things they can never do while spending their whole life trying to do all those things. So they're offended. So the Adam nature in you is 100% of the time offended by the Jesus nature in you. That's why church people are always offended. It's a manifestation that another nature is trying to get out. So when people split because somebody wanted the carpets this color and another group wanted the carpets this color, y'all think that's a joke? That was my story growing up. So they want some wanted red carpet, others wanted blue carpet. I thought they were all crazy because both of those are ugly. But they wanted red carpet, blue carpet, so he split the church. Why are they offended? Because the Lord is trying his best to find somebody that looks like Jesus. But the first thing that's going to have to happen before you look like Jesus is your Adam nature to be offended. I know it's not pop. I know, I know that doesn't like sell big tickets, but that, that's just the reality. Jesus, why does Jesus call us to die in order to live? Because he knows as long as that Adam man in you is still alive, you'll never live. A lot of us pray like, Lord, I want life to the full. I want life to the full. I want life to the full. And he's saying, you got life to the full. You just got to take care of Adam first. None of us want to do that, though. All of us want to live life to the full. And very few of us want to make the sacrifice to take an end to Adam. Are y'all good? I, the Lord had this conversation with me this week. I'll ask for more. This is where we are in Song of Songs. She asked for more. He comes to her with the cost. Okay? A lot of us ask for more, and then he responds with, all right, this is what it's going to cost you. And we, that's usually where, right about where we stop. Right? Lord, I want more, I want more, I want more, I want more. Awesome. First thing you have to do, stop going to parties. You, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, or, or let me just touch another. So, um, Lord, I want more, I want more. Awesome. That relationship that you're in, that you're doing stuff outside of marriage you shouldn't be doing, I'm going to need that. Yeah, right? And then, and then we'll stop. Then we'll stop. I know this. I know this. I'm, I'm sorry. No, I'm not. That, so then we'll, we're, Lord, I just, man, I, that she, I think she's the one. I think he's the one. I, I just don't know. And he's saying, I don't, I don't know if they're the one or not. I just need to take care of Adam right now. Or, Lord, I want more. I want more. I want more. Hey, awesome. Uh, I, I'm going to need you to stop robbing me and tithe. Hold up. I, yeah. 
Lord, you know I can't afford to tithe. Maybe the reason you can't afford to tithe is because you ain't giving anything. You know what I'm saying? Right? So none of us have an ear to hear that. Right there, everybody's offended. Right? Right? I would say raise your hand if you're offended, but y'all going to lie. So, er, so, right? Right? So when I say some of that stuff, or your, your first kickback, let me say it like this. But look, you, I want more, I want more, I want more. Sweet. Show up to church. Uh-oh. Right? Right? Let, am I a father or am I just some, like, like cool dude with sneakers? Because I promise you I ain't the second. I'm a spiritual father in this house. And I'm telling, Lord, I want more, I want more, I want more, I want more. That's, this is what, that's the, the cry of our generation, revival, revival, revival. And he's saying, listen, stadiums are great and events are great. But until you get rooted, I cannot release new wine to you. It requires a baptism and an anointing that will transform you into a new wineskin. But immediately when I say some of that stuff, your first, your first reaction is, well, I don't know about that. That's not in the Bible. Yeah, it is. Right? I just don't know about that. That's not how I grew up. All right. So, <laughs> so sometimes it just comes. I'm sorry, Lord. Forgive me. Um, <laughs> praying amnesia. Lord, give us amnesia. Um, the Lord showed me this this week, though. God doesn't prove, I promise you I'm going to Song of Songs. God doesn't prove our faith. He doesn't prove our faith so that he can see where our faith is. He already knows. We prove our faith by how we live in faith. The, the, the testing or proving, I, th I think, is a way better way of saying it. The proving of your faith develops perseverance, which eventually makes you perfect, lacking nothing. So, so how is your faith proved? How is your trust proved? When you're in school, you take tests to know where you are academically, right? Right, I mean, teachers don't just give tests because, I mean, some of them probably give it because it's just fun to see people take tests, but... For the most part, you take tests in school to see how well you have absorbed whatever information that's been taught to you, right? The test proves where you are, okay? Y'all understand this? So the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Why? Because it proves where you are, and if you know where you are, then you know where you can go from where you are. But if you don't have a clue where you are, you have no idea where you can go because you don't even know where you're starting, right? And so we see the testing of our faith, which is what the Shulamite has, is going through. We see the testing of our faith as waiting for God to send the next storm so that we can grow from it. In other words, storms, so we think, are an imperative part of our faith. All right, I just, I need, I just need to fix a couple things real quick. That, that we see, Lord, a storm comes into our life, we brace for impact, and then we say, you know what, it's all right, he's testing me. He's testing me. Th that's what we say, right? So, so subconsciously, Storms are actually imperative to our walk with the Lord. Subconsciously, we're always bracing for something. And then while we're bracing for something, we'll explain it away by saying, well, the Lord just wants to prove my faith. Okay? So what will we do 
in the new heaven and new earth when storms cease. Have no faith? I mean, right? When, when Jesus comes back, let me tell you what ain't going to be here. Storms of life. So when storms of life are gone, does our faith go with it? Because we attach those at the hip. We only live by faith when things go bad. Right? I lose my job and immediately faith kicks in and I'm going to have another one. But while I'm in my job, I'm going to just put it on cruise control and we'll just see what happens. So, the testing or proving of our faith is not defensive, it's actually offensive. So, you don't brace for something to then prove your faith. You prove your faith and then you never have to brace for anything the rest of your life. So, right? So I prove my faith. Me and Ellington got kicked out of the library. Was it this week or last week? Last week? Last week? The greatest day of my life. So we go, we go into the library, see some guy hobbling on a cane. I was like, all right, here we go. Uh, trying to find my iPad. Can I just break for a second? Let me tell you how the Lord, the Lord is so good. The Lord is so good. Y'all want to know how good he is? Somebody, so y'all remember last week somebody stole our iPad? All right. So I found out Monday they also stole my guitar which is a, a, a really expensive guitar. And so um, so I was looking around for it, found out they stole it. Spencer's guitar case was missing, found out they put it in the guitar case and left. So Tuesday morning, was it Tuesday morning or Monday morning? Monday morning. Monday morning. Um, I was on the way down here, and I was like, you know what? Let me just go check the pawn shops. Just see. I go in the first pawn shop. There she is. We got it back. We got it back. They didn't want it. They wanted to charge me for it. And I was like, I told Spencer this week, I was like, my, you talk about testing your faith. I've never wanted to flip tables more in my life. Want me to pay for something that's mine. Like, so I called the cops. They came and gave me my guitar. So um, we got it back. Praise the Lord. Right? So we go into the library. This is what we go into the library to find, try to find the iPad. Couldn't find it. But, uh, a guy comes walking by, and I was like, hey, man, I'd love to pray for you. I believe the Lord's going to heal your knee. He was like, great, let's pray. Right before we pray, hold up, can't do that, can't do that, separation of church and state. And the lady walks up, she's got a wrist brace on. So I was like, well, this is awesome, we'll just like, double up. So uh, she comes up, and uh, long story short, we get kicked out of the library for praying for, you, praying for somebody to be healed. And as we're walking out, I was like, and the Lord's going to heal your wrist, too. And like, <laughs> you know, we're walking out, Jesus loves you. Uh, but I was so excited we got kicked out. Why do I say that? Because in that moment, I was proving my faith, all right? I see somebody come by. I feel the Lord download the seed of faith within me that he wants to heal this person. And immediately in that moment, my faith is tested. Do I respond by saying yes or do I respond by saying, well, maybe he won't do it, Right? So I'm not waiting for a storm to see if I can get through the storm. I'm living by faith. And that's how I prove my faith, which results in me lacking nothing. It's not sitting back and waiting. It's me being offensive and living in faith. Okay? So the Shulamite is in the position where she has said, go ahead, go on without me. I'm just going to stay here. And whenever all the shadows of fear disappear, then I'll come, which we all know don't happen. Right? Right? We were never designed to focus on shadows anyway. Jesus didn't give three thoughts to the storm that was swamping his boat. He didn't care. Why? Because he knew he just had to say hush. He was actually hoping the disciples would do it for him. 
Okay, so at this point in Song of Songs, Song of Songs 3, now I'm actually going to read it. So here we go. Song of Songs 3, starting in verse, and then we're almost done. That was really most of the sermons, the intro, but welcome to Dream. This is your first time. Um, who? So Song of Songs 3, verse 6, verse 6, okay? She finds him, she fastens herself to him and says, I'll never let you go. Then the Lord speaks, the Father speaks this, and he says, Who is this one ascending from the wilderness in the pillar of the glory cloud? Point number one, he ascends from where? The wilderness, the wilderness, if you will. In the pillar of the glory cloud. He is fragrant with the anointing oils of myrrh and frankincense. Excuse me. More fragrant than all the spices, goodness gracious, of the merchant. Look, it is the king's marriage carriage, the love seat surrounded by 60 champions, the mightiest of Israel's host, are like pillars of protection. They are angelic warriors standing ready with swords to defend the king and his fiancée from every terror of the night. The king made this mercy seat for himself out of the finest wood that will not decay. Pillars of smoke like silver mist, a canopy of golden glory dwells above it. The place where they sit together is sprinkled with crimson. Love and mercy cover the carriage, blanketing his tabernacle throne. The king himself has made it for those who will become his bride. Rise up. Zion maidens, brides-to-be, come and feast your eyes on the king as he passes in procession on his way to his wedding. This is the day filled with overwhelming joy, the day of his great gladness. Amazing chapter, or piece of chapter. Okay? So at this point in Song of Songs, the Shulamite has made the transition She's living by faith, not by sight. Okay? From the wilderness, which speaks of life in the sin-natured planet, okay? In a pillar of glory cloud, which speaks of his ascension into the glory realm in Acts 1. She's seeing a new way. She's seeing her bridegroom in a way that she has yet to see him before in the middle of his glory. This is huge. And I didn't even mean to do this, but the Lord is just tying things together like crazy. All right, Habakkuk, what's he flooding the earth with? Glory, goodness, okay? She makes the decision, despite all the fears and despite all the steps of faith, it will require, I'm going to fasten myself to you and never let go. The next scene, she sees him ascending from the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Because that's where he and her were in the moment when she was wondering whether or not she was actually going to make the decision to go with him to his mountain. Okay, So in the wilderness, she begins to see him in a new way. In the middle of his glory, or let me say it like this, she actually begins to see him as good. Man, so the, the Lord, Yahweh, the Father, speaks. Who is this one ascending from the wilderness in the pillar 
of the goodness cloud is another way you could say that. She sees him not as just the beautiful bridegroom. Now, because she has made the decision to live in trust, she gets access to seeing him in a new way, good. So her trust unlocks the vision to see goodness. I don't know if it's possible to see him in all of his goodness until you transition from distrust to trust. And I like, don't, don't make that because I talk about trust all the time. Don't make it just like, oh, here we go again, trust. No, no, no. This, I mean, this is everything. Okay? When she makes the decision to transition from, I don't know about this, to I'm going to trust you even though I don't know about this, she begins to see him in the cloud of goodness. Maybe 2020 vision is vision to see goodness like we couldn't before. Almost done. She then is joined in his glory because she makes the decision to trust. The king's marriage carriage, which is kind of hard to say, the king's marriage carriage, listen to this, is the Hebrew word for couch. Okay? It's the Hebrew word for couch, uh, which is a, a place of rest. It would be <coughs> translated in Hebrew. She said no in chapter 2. Why? Because do you remember that she was burned out tending her brother's ministry vineyards? The Passion Translation says she was burned out because she was doing stuff on the outside but failing to tend her garden within. So she was tired. She was burned out. And then he comes and says, my answer to your burnout is let's go on a hike up my mountain. To which she responds by saying, there's no way. I'm exhausted. Go on without me. We'll figure it out later. Here's what she doesn't understand. He conceals. Remember Proverbs 25. He conceals things so that the king and queen can find it. He told her that they were going to arise up his mountain. What he concealed is that he was actually bringing a couch for her to ride up the mountain on. So excited. Okay. Right? Right? So he says, Arise, my love. Come away with me. Let's climb the mountains. He's given all this language over oh, going higher, we're going higher, we're going higher. And all she can think about is, I'm so tired, there is no way. And what he hides is if you would trust me, you'd actually see the way you're getting from here to there is a couch. So he actually intended to give her the rest that she desired. It was just on the other side of trust. So some of you are hearing whispers and the Lord's saying this, this, this. And your response is, there's no way I can do all of that. And what he's concealing is the fact that he's going to do it for you. Right? There's no way I can start a church. We don't have the financial plan, but I trust you. And then he unlocks the next level. Oh, by the way, I got your financial plan for you. I'll provide for all your needs according to my riches. Right? 
So, so he conceals the fact that he's bringing a couch for her to ride up in. She says no because she's too tired. He says, I'm actually going to give you more rest than you had before. It's more restful to trust than it is to do nothing. Let me, let me, say, let me say this, because we don't think this. You know, man, I'm so exhausted. I'm too tired to go to church today. That's what you know, like, or whatever. All right? Here's what we don't say. Trust is more restful than doing nothing is. Because as you begin to trust, you unlock his measure of rest that is way beyond your measure of rest. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me with your burdens, and I'll trade you with my rest. That's what, that's what he says. The promise for us is if we will exchange our burdens, he'll give us rest in return. That's an exchange we should be making on a daily basis. Why don't we? I don't know. But, I mean, the idea that we can take all of our anxiety and say, here you go, and then him say, here's all of my peace, here you go. And we don't do it. Right? None of us do it. We trust in our work. We trust in what we're doing. We trust in how effective we can do what we're doing. And we think what we're doing is actually going to bring us peace. And what we're actually doing is working against the will of the Lord that wants to bring us peace without us doing anything. Okay. I said that. I said, I said what I said about a fence because I knew some of this stuff might hit some people in a weird way. Just so you know, it's Jesus coming. <coughs> Okay. In ancient times, a bride and groom would be carried on a seat just like this. Okay, And they would be carried on men's shoulders where they were reclined and hidden by curtains or veiled. So back in uh, ancient times, brides and grooms would be in a seat like the one we're talking about, the marriage carriage. And they would be covered in curtains like a veil. And people would carry them to their destination while they reclined together, hidden from public view or the secret place. Okay? This is actually the exact same way the Ark of the Covenant was carried. Same way. So we're carried by the Holy Spirit and grace where we are fully convinced that we are safe with Him. The enemy's main objective is to stir doubt within us. This, this is the last couple of notes I have. The enemy's main objective is to stir doubt within us. If the, in, the enemy has no authority to do anything. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. I've taken the keys, which is authority. So the enemy has no authority. So all he can do is come and whisper, hey, maybe he's not as good as he says. Can't do anything. He can't force you to look at stuff you shouldn't be looking at. He can't force you to get in relationships you shouldn't be in. He can't force you to not give. He can't force you to not pray for people. He can't do any of that stuff. You choose to do that stuff with the whisper, hey, maybe he's not going to do that. Maybe he's not that good. And so the enemy's main objective is to stir doubt within us. Doubt and trust are always against each other. Trust is the thing hell fears the most. 
The, the thing that hell shivers over is the thought of a son and daughter being so convinced that he's good that they actually trust him. Because if you start trusting, game over. Remember, all of creation is yearning for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God so that creation can experience with us freedom from decay. So they're just, creation is the birds, all the animals in the fields, all the trees, all the stars are just sitting and standing with anticipation, waiting for one man or one woman to say, you know what? He's never going to let me down. You are good. I trust you. I mean, if he's never going to let you down, then what do you need to start doing? I mean, yeah, yeah, if you need to walk, walk. Um, but I, I saw this this week. I'm done. I, I saw this this week. Uh, scientists, y'all ready to get weird for a second? Again, I'll say what I said last week. Some of y'all are thinking, man, I thought it was already there. Um, y'all, y'all, are, y'all are very weird. Um, scientists this week, for the first time in history, have discovered that between, I believe it was May and October of 2018 um, or 19, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, 2018. Between May and October of 2018, they were getting these random pulses a frequency from deep into outer space all over the place for months. And you, you watch the graph. They have graphs of when this was happening, and you watch it, and it's just spurts all over the place. Never seen before in history. Earlier last year, scientists discovered for the first time in history black holes that instead of destroying matter actually began to spin off new stars. Some of y'all remember me saying this stuff. What, so, so, Josh, what's that got to do with anything? Let, I'm, let me just make a prophetic statement. Creation is saying, there's one. There's another. There's one. We're getting free. We're getting out of slavery. You know what I'm saying? And all the creation, the cosmos, for God so loved the cosmos that he gave his son that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal, limitless life. For God did not come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world so that through him it might experience salvation, saving. So all of creation is yearning for the manifestation of sons and daughters of God. And as we begin to be manifest in trust, creation is responding saying, we're getting free. We're getting free. And the freer you get, the freer it gets. And the freer you get, the freer it gets. And the more you trust, the more it trusts. And what happens is, is then you're going to be in the middle of a revelation that says, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth descending from the heavenly realm All old things have passed away. Behold, now all things are new. Jesus is not sitting back waiting for everything to get bad so that he can come back and save everybody and blow it all up. 
What he's waiting for is sons and daughters to be so convinced that he's good that he comes and reigns with the ones that trust him to the point that we are in a new heaven, new earth reality. What in the world did he mean when he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? He had in mind, not destruction, newness. Regeneration is what he had. There were three things in this mercy seat in the temple. This is Ellington. You want to come up, play a little bit? There were three things in this mercy seat. Remember, we are seated in this passage. The king has made this mercy seat for himself. It goes through and describes how it's surrounded. And then he says, he made it for those who will become his bride. The mercy seat. The mercy seat was the seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. Okay? So the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, and that was the place where Exodus talks about God would show up and speak intimately to his people in the Holy of Holies. The mercy seat was the seat on top of this Ark. Okay? And it was surrounded by two seraphim on each side. So one seraphim here, one seraphim here, and their wings covered this seat where Yahweh would appear and speak. Within this mercy seat, within the ark, there was a jar of manna. So manna from the wilderness, okay? There was Aaron's budding rod that came back to life. And then there was the tablets of the law. Three things in this Ark of the Covenant, okay? There was manna, there was Aaron's budding staff that came back to life, and the tablets of the law. Within you is the bread of life, resurrection, and a covenant written upon your heart. Hebrews 10, 16. You're, you're the mercy seat where he appears and begins to speak intimately with you and his people. Verse 10 talks about what we're surrounded by because of our priceless worth. And you can go back and study through some of that stuff. But in verse 11, I want to read this, and then I'm going to end with a verse in Revelation, and then we're done. Verse 11, he says, Rise up, Zion maidens, brides-to-be. Come and feast your eyes on this king as he passes in procession on his way to his wedding. This is the day filled with overwhelming joy, the day of his great gladness. This is what the end, and then I'm done. Revelation 22, this is what the end of your Bible says. It says this, Revelation 22, and I'm going to read verse 7. 17, excuse me, 17. It says this, it says, Come, says the Holy Spirit and the bride, this is in the Passion Translation, and divine duet. Let everyone who hears this duet join them in saying, Come. Let everyone gripped with spiritual thirst say, Come. And everyone who craves the gift of living water, come and drink it freely. It's my gift to give you, come. Most of your Bibles say, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. What is that? It's the call of everything inside of us 
in divine duet with the Holy Spirit saying, Jesus, come. Don't make that about the end. I know that's real challenging. Do not make that about the end. In fact, here's the other translation of that. The other way you could say come, the other translation is be continuously coming. In every single instance of the word come in this section, the other translation of that word is be continuously coming. It's a cry. It's not a, hey, come so we can get out of this thing. It's a cry, come so that me and you in divine duet can begin to dance this dance of trust and response and trust and goodness and trust and grace and trust and healing. And as we begin to dance this dance, everybody in the path of our twirl is going to begin to be called up in the goodness that was not accessible before a son and daughter made the decision, I'm going to trust to the point that my dance actually becomes my evangelism. What if we could reach the globe by our dance with Yeshua more than a microphone or a megaphone telling people choose heaven or hell? I promise you if they could get an experience where they begin to dance with the one that they were created in the image of, they'll have no issue choosing heaven because that's where he is. And they'll have no issue remaining because that's where he is too. You understand this? Heaven's going to be a great place. I don't think I have to wait till I die to experience it. In fact, I've settled for a very inferior version of heaven if I think I have to wait till I die to experience it. Heaven is not about streets of gold. The streets are made of gold because Yahweh is the one enthroned there. And if he ever becomes enthroned here, all of our streets will respond in a transition from asphalt to gold. The the leaves on the trees that are for the healing of the nations have nothing to do with the fact that there's some heaven floating around 10 billion miles on Pluto. It has everything to do with Yahweh is so enthroned that the leaves respond by saying, if Yahweh's enthroned here, then I must be designed for healing. And if he could ever get enthroned here like he is there, then our leaves will start becoming the leaves that are the healing for the nations. I mean, we'll start sending leaves through USPS and everybody that touches it just get healed. Right? That's partially a joke and partially reality. There's about 10% reality in every joke. So, or more. Y'all with me? And here's what I need from us, though. I'm convinced of this. I've given my life for this. I left, I left the show, I left the popularity, I left the thousands, I left all that stuff to be planted right here with whoever else will be planted with me and say, if it takes every single thing I have, I want to gaze into your eyes the rest of my life. One thing I ask, and this shall I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon the beauty of your countenance. That, that's my life. My life is centered and based on the fact that I believe he has unlocked for a group of people in this room access to actually be able to gaze upon the beauty of his countenance the rest of our lives. 
to transition from that being a longing to that being reality. And so what I need from you guys is I need us to get, in, and I know you're saying, like, Josh, I'm serious, but I need us to get serious about this thing. Like, I, some, some of y'all need to get rooted here. And I, and I know that a lot of, we're talking about, like, we talk about unity around the body and stuff like that. But listen, the way that the body of Christ is going to be unified is by the body of Christ seeing somebody living in their designed identity. We, for, forever, we call unity compromise. You know what I mean? Well, and unity in the business world, it, compromise is great. In your marriage, compromise is great. In the kingdom, compromise is not great. You know what I'm saying? So let's say, I want to be unified with you, so therefore, I'll just stop living in my designed identity just enough to relate to you. And what the Lord wants to do is he wants us to relate to him in such a way that it causes his bride to want to also relate to him in that way. And in that, we're going to create unity in the body. It's not being relatable to the body. It's actually being relatable to him. Y'all with me? So what I need is for us as a church to begin this pursuit of looking as much like Jesus as we were designed to look, which is actually... How do I say this without getting in trouble? We're designed to look so much like Jesus that Yahweh has a hard time seeing the difference. I mean, you're one with him, right? We have been joined in life union with him, Scripture. If we're joined with him, we should look like him. Some of y'all, see, some of y'all just got offended. Um... I mean, this stuff is real. Listen, I love, I'm, I'm thankful some of y'all grew up in church, but at the end of the day, this is brand new. How you grew up and how I grew up will not make it in this. It was a great stepping stone. But if you remain on this level of glory, I'm not staying there because some of us can't get past this level because it's going to require us to kill some things. I'm going there. And I want all of us to be there with us. But it's, go it's going to cost us something. It's going to require you to get to the place where you start hearing whispers that you begin to say, I don't know about that. I grew up hearing this, but this is, this is different. And I'm, and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about questioning the virgin birth. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when he begins to whisper to you about the leaves being for the healing of the nations. And when he begins to whisper to you about your driveway being paved with gold because he so reigns in your house. And he begins to whisper to you about all the things that you used to deal with in the realm of sickness and disease and losing relationships and losing trust and losing everything that you thought you were going to hold tight to in your career and your schooling, when he begins to come and deal with who you are, you've got to be able to make the decision, I trust you despite the shadows of fear so that he can unveil to you the couch that he's actually going to sit you on and take you to the mountain with him. There is a couch that is accessible to all who will say, I don't understand this, but I trust you. And there is a couch that we will never access unless we make the decision. I don't understand this, but I trust you. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more information, visit dreamcolumbia.com.